Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 37, where we're traveling back to 1979 and the 34th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Joseph Schwantner, for his orchestral work, Aftertones of Infinity. So, Andrew, we're coming up to the end of another decade in Hearing the Pulitzers oh, yeah. here. This is, yeah, end 19- of the 70s. I know. So, uh, and this with another living composer. We had, uh, our last one wasn't, but we had uh, Richard Warnick Richard Warnick before two that. episodes ago, yeah. And Ned Roram. So, Joseph Schwantner is still alive and well. So, what are your experiences with Schwantner? So I know Schwantner is a band composer. <laughs> I think that's, yeah. uh, for those of us in the Midwest and the South, that's how we first experienced Schwantner. Although now he really composed, after this point, really it did a lot of orchestral music. But um, I first encountered Schwantner with And the Mountains Rising Nowhere, mm-hmm. which is a work he composed right before After Tones of Infinity. And I think we'll talk about there's a lot of similarities between those two works. Uh, but that's really how I knew him first. It was only later that I discovered, oh yeah, he wrote orchestral music, even though that's what he wins the Pulitzer for. What about you? Yeah, pretty similar uh, in terms of hearing the music and knowing about him. Uh, but I had the pleasure, and this is going to be a, a recurring story because it happens to another winner later. Uh, I did my master's degree at the Eastman School of Music, and I worked in the music library. And uh, one day, I usually worked at the reference desk, but one day I was filling in at circulation. And all of a sudden, I had to check out books for Joseph Schwantner. Oh. And he came up. He was very, he's very friendly. He had a, a, a plaid shirt. You still uh, remember I these still things? I still remember, yeah. Uh, he, because encounters with greatness. Encounters. <laughs> you have a little diary with all <laughs> the people. Right. Encountered Joseph Schwantner wearing plaid shirt. Yes, in 1999. <laughs> yeah, and he came up. He looks like he does in the, on his website. He had a beard and uh, just, I don't remember what he was checking out, but. Uh, yeah, he'll be the first. Of, I remember the plaid shirt, but not that. Yeah, I should have paid attention. I think I was probably thinking, oh, this is Joseph Schwanner. He's a, a well-known composer, American composer. Yeah. So, uh, Because he was one of two Pulitzer Prize winners on the faculty at the time. So uh, we'll, yeah, we'll save the suspense for the next one. But but yeah, like you, I knew the And the Mountains Rising Nowhere was kind of the, the big piece yeah. that you'd hear from bands. But. Yeah. Well, maybe it's time that we tell the story a bit. Telling the story. So we're back to just in our studio here. No live audience, yeah. like cold grass. Kind of, kind of missed that interaction. But it's exciting to talk about someone like Joseph Schwatner because we both have connections with Chicago, and he is a Chicagoan, right? Yes, he received his training. So he was born 1943, went to the Chicago Conservatory, which I don't know... If that's, I think it has changed names mm-hmm. a few times, uh, and then Northwestern University, which I grew up about 15 minutes from Northwestern, so it was a, a locus of activity, and then went to uh, served was a faculty member as I mentioned at Eastman, but also Juilliard and Yale, and uh, an interesting composer in that he, I think he is very much part continuing this trend of the late seventies composers Mm -hmm. that we've been looking at in terms of interest in, I don't want to say accessibility, but maybe engagement with the audience is back here. Well, I think even more than engagement, this interest in new timbres. Yeah. And sounds. I mean, this is interesting that we're listening to him and you go back to 
you know, a decade ago in terms of Pulitzer time, and we have George Crumb. Right. And from Crumb kind of until now, you have a lot of composers who, I mean, yes, accessibility, absolutely, but also this idea of let's use all these new sounds that are available to us, and in this case, in the orchestra. So I think that's also kind of a connection that we're seeing for a lot of these 70s <laughs> Pulitzer winners. That's we, We've seen these trends happen. Yeah. I think this is one of the trends that we see in the 1970s. Well, and also around this time, too, I think, and this will happen with our next composer, too, the idea of neo-romanticism mm-hmm. has started to come up. And this is, I think, a pretty good example of it, as were, were some of the other previous winners in the last few years. Yeah. Could yeah. be put in a Druckmann or... Uh, even Colgrass at some point. Uh, so there's a, a change. You know, he he mentioned in an interview about composers like George Rockberg and George Crumb, who changed everything at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he's very much part of that. It's it's funny. You look at the looking back at our decade of the '70s. You had one real anomaly. I think was Carter. Yeah. With the third quartet, which was just so different than any of these other. It really was so complex. Not yeah. even thinking about the audience, no. just thinking about the craft. And I mean, even we found that the Carter was almost impenetrable for yeah. us. Yeah. So, it, so to have these new intentions back, I think, or these new intentions be part of the conversation, I think is going to be very influential going forward on certainly the next one, next composer that we'll talk about oh, absolutely. as well as a few more. So, Why don't we go behind the notes and talk about the aftertones of infinity? Behind the notes. Okay, so the first thing about this score, which we have the score, we've looked at the score, studied the score, is it doesn't look like a traditional orchestral piece. No. Now, I knew this because of And the Mountains Rising Nowhere, that he's interested in using French scoring, right? This open scoring that if you're not playing, you're not in the score. But it creates uh, this very beautiful score that is very different looking. And we'll post a link to it in the, in the show notes so you can, you can see this. Um, but he used this up until the 1990s when he moved into computer notation, that he would hand notate. And so you end up with going back to talking about Crumb again. There's just so many, mm-hmm. to me, uh, echoes, uh, not aftertones of infinity, these aftertones of Crumb in <laughs> of many crumb. ways uh, for this piece. So you begin to see this, uh, just the visualness of it, I think is really beautiful, the score. I didn't know that was the name. So that it's called French scoring, French scoring. because I think of those late Stravinsky pieces, like uh, movements or uh, the Requiem canticles, it'll just have, you'll just see the, the trombone line jut out and then something else will come in under it and so you don't have all the full score. Unless everyone's playing, it's not yeah. all there. Yeah, that's it. It makes it really easy to follow. It does because you know who's playing. You're not looking at a hundred instruments. So, uh, but that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's because you hear this a lot in this work. I think he's playing a lot with time and kind of groups and gestures mm-hmm. and blocks of things that uh, are sometimes static, but sometimes not. A lot of layers happening here, and uh, he he was a guitar player, I believe. He was, which is. Unusual, so I think Hector Berlioz was the only other guitar playing. Uh, well, I think it also that that background means that he approaches the orchestra differently than exactly That's anyone what it, else that we've talked about in terms of winning a Pulitzer Prize. Yep. This doesn't sound like an orchestral work, and it actually sounds more like a band work. Yeah, because the strings yeah. are kind of in the background, and the percussion and the winds are really prominent. 
Mm-hmm. And especially the, the the sound of the percussion is very strong here, and especially the um, the mallet percussion, oh, yeah. the bells, right, the glockenspiel, the celeste, the piano, all those sounds are really prominent in the overall sound of this piece more than you know the strings. Right, and it does. Even though you have all these kind of gestures and movements, there is a I want to say a pad underneath, like a drone or something. And this is not something new. We've heard this before mm-hmm. in pre, our, some of our previous winners. This mode of writing is there you set up this foundation and then you have these events going on top of it and so the you'll hear that the vibes play this collection of notes several times throughout the piece uh you there i wrote down a couple of gestures here on a piece of paper i'm going to pull out here (laughs) you and your paper me and my paper i know he's got a paper uh I think some of it sound, you have these sections that sound like tinkling mm-hmm. bells and tinkling sounds that almost sound like they could be in a horror movie, mm. kind of creepy effect. Then you have a rocking section in the middle mm-hmm. that grooves, and that is something very different. You've got this big, enormous, epic chord at the, I think, the climax yeah. of the piece, probably. That's just every instrument sounds like something from Pert mm-hmm. or you know, a huge sound mass. Yeah. So you've got all these techniques. Yeah, it's very sectional. There's, it's very clear that he plays around with an idea and then he moves to the next idea. It's hum- kind of in three big sections yes. that you move through just in terms of your experience of the work. Um, but those sounds, I mean, I love some of the sounds. So yeah. one of the things that he does is uh, he adds in um, water glasses, right? Crystal goblets that are tuned and the... Um, I think it's the clarinet and the flute. It's the the upper woodwinds. They end up rubbing their finger around that goblet to create this <laughs> kind of eerie, haunting sound. And at the same time, he's like, well, um, moments of the score, you're just going to sing. I don't care who you are. You're going to sing. And so the musicians end up having to sing la or ah. There's no text, right. but it's just a sound. I thought we might listen a little bit to some of those sounds um, that he calls the celestial choir. <laughs> I thought it'd be interesting to kind of hear that sound. This is a little bit uh, about halfway through the piece that this moment comes and it builds to one of those big kind of brassy chords that you were talking about. So you get a little bit of both. Uh, so this is Aftertones of Infinity. At the beginning, you can hear that choir yep. singing down below that pad you were talking about. It's been taken over by the choir, and then all the mallet percussion just oh, kind yeah. of doing this little tinkly groove up on top. It's really, it's really beautiful and effective. And that choir, that choir that comes back at the end. That's how the piece ends. That's how the too. piece ends is that sound. Yeah. Now we should say this. This was uh, Schwantner wrote a poem that was kind of the inspiration for the piece. That's where the title comes from. So, would you like a dramatic reading of? The I would poem? love a dramatic reading. <laughs> Dreams from a dark millennium. Imperial visions, vague, myriad tendrils floating on an eternal voyage. Journeying primordial pathways through cosmic cauldrons to afterworlds beyond the edge of forever. Celestial voices echo the lost dreams of the children of the universe, the aftertones of infinity. 
Which that's kind of what it actually sounds like. It does. I will say it's that poem. really good. Just yeah. this idea of journeying primordial pathways through cosmic cauldrons. I mean, that's how it feels. Yeah. And you feel like you're going somewhere, but you never actually go anywhere in the piece. Yeah, it's static. It's and, very static. It's extremely yeah. static. And the harmonic resources are really interesting in that, you know, we've been kind of characterizing him so far as a neo-romantic and, mm-hmm. I mean, interested in his audience. And yes, he is. He's trying to communicate with the audience. But that doesn't mean that it's just beautiful, you know, 19th century tonal. No. That pad is what gives you the kind of sense of tonality. But in the middle of that, you have all sorts of interesting things. So I want to play one more section. And this is getting to that groove section you were talking about, but he has almost pattern that is almost 12 tone. And then he strips some of the notes out and you just get this groove that starts building off of some of those notes. So you get this movement from almost 12 tone to very kind of tonal groove. So we'll listen a little to this. Yeah, you can really hear that. Uh, it's building and the kind of layering, and it's, mm-hmm. it's not minimalistic. It's not all, minimalistic, but it's it, there's a certain like patterns, and mm-hmm. it, I love this the whole idea. Of, now I'm just thinking of the journey, the very, very space like mm-hmm. kind of you're seeing like Star Trek or Star Wars or something, just seeing things happening in the galaxy. Well, he creates a sense of suspension. Suspend, yeah, in the music, yeah. So it's not like you feel grounded at almost any time. You get these moments, mm-hmm. like that little brassy chord that we heard at the end of the Celestial Choir there. You get these moments where you're like, aha, we've arrived. It feels like a cadence and then undercut and I keep keep going. Yeah. And even the ending is not like this huge triumphal ending. It just kind of disappears. Yeah, that's the, you hear the the humming going. Mm-hmm. I had to turn up the first time I listened. I said, oh, is it over? Oh, no, it's not over yet. It's and still the, going. Oh, it's still going. They're humming. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, echoing maybe the celestial voices, echoing the lost dreams, and the of the children of the universe, the aftertones of infinity. So, mm-hmm. I think it's a very effective metaphor for the piece, and uh, and a, a good way to put it together using a lot of different materials. In a, uh, I think, you, like you said, you can hear what's happening. Yeah. It, you, you don't feel lost, even though it is not grounded. You can still go from moment to moment. And there's also a kind of sense of almost Klangfarben melody. Oh, yeah, yeah. In that you get the whole arch of a melody or a theme, but the individual players aren't, it's not just hearing it just in flute. It will start in flute and then it moves over here to the mallet percussions and then it will come in in horn and then it will move to the strings. And so you get this kind of overall tapestry. And again, this kind of plays into the French scoring mm-hmm. that. You don't need to see those parts, so they just kind of disappear, but you're handing that melody off, which is incredibly difficult, but very effective. Yeah, definitely. Well, should we see if the critics and the jury see what they had to say, if they thought it was effective? Hit or miss? Okay, so we always start with the jury. Let's see what they had to say about Aftertones of Infinity. All right, so this was premiered 
at Alice Tully Hall at the Lincoln Center in New York by the American Composers Orchestra conducted by Lucas Foss in January of 1979. A pretty good concert, I think. Uh, you and I would love the beginning. So we've got Carl Ruggles' Men in Mountains. Good starter. Great starter. <laughs> uh, Lucas Foss' Orpheus for solo viola and orchestra. Then Louise Talma, Tolling Bell Triptych for baritone and orchestra. And then Schwantner, this is the closer of the concert. It doesn't strike me as a closer. No, it doesn't. It's more of a... It's the end of the first half. Uh, Yes, yes. It's after the overture. (laughs) It's after the overture, the end of the first half, because you want people to go off, you know, with a bang, and this would... You wouldn't know, are you clapping? Is it time to leave? Right. Because of the way that it ends. Yeah, exactly. That's a great program, though. Mm -hmm. It is. So the jury here... Another interesting stuff going on. The unanimous choice of the music jury for the 1979 Pulitzer Prize is Aftertones Infinity. And then they talk about it. Uh, This distinguished and original orchestral work is highly expressive, beautifully constructed, evocative, and maintains the highest standards of musical craft. It is fascinating in its varied use of musical textures and color. Mm. And while possessing a rich orchestral palette, it exhibits masterful control of formal and motivic materials. It is the opinion of the jury this work merits repeated hearings. So who was on the jury? Well, Ulysses K. is now the chair. Okay, so So, we we see people who have served their time. They've now moved. Now that Chalmers Clifton (laughs) is not there anymore. No, or John Hohenberg or any of the others. It's... uh, Yep, Ulysses K. is now chair. And then Richard Warnick, so Past previous winner. winner. And Norman Dello Joyo, also previous, previous winner, winner yeah. are the on there. So the second choice, I know this is one of your favorites, I'm sure. Henri Lazaroff's Concerto for Orchestra. Who? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm friends with some saxophonists. I think he wrote a saxophone piece. That's okay. about as much as I don't know but it was premiered by baltimore in 1978 this work of powerful intensity did not quite measure up to the level of craftsmanship of the jury's first choice so it's also interesting they're so focused on craftsmanship yeah to me i'll agree yes beautifully written but to me it's the affect that is so important about this piece and they don't discuss really that at all i mean they mention a little bit about the the timbers yeah the use of different textures but to me, that's the reason you award this piece is because it's using the orchestra in such a novel way. Yes. So if you look at their, their criticism or their commentary, highly, I think it's those things you were talking about. It's highly expressive. It's evocative, beautifully constructed. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are, and then has the highest standards of musical craft. So you got to get that in there. Got to get that in there. Well, yeah. but also looking at those yeah. individuals, uh, you can see why that would be something that would be true. A value to them that they want to extol. True, true. Well, was this a unanimous hit from the critics? Well, Harold Schoenberg, our good friend <laughs> yeah. in the New York Times, attended that premiere at Alice Tully Hall. And he said, Joseph Schwantner is a 36-year-old composer out of Chicago. So, of course, we've mentioned one of the youngest winners. Yeah. We were talking about this before we recorded. His 15-minute long Aftertones of Infinity is a rather pretentious title for a rather pretentious piece. Ouch. The musical philosophy is touched by the serialism of the immediate past, which we mentioned, mm-hmm. with its tritones, its frequent patches of total and enthusiastic dissonance, <laughs> its reliance on percussion and vibraphone effects. At least the piece is not doctrinaire and has some lush sounds. At the end, Mr. Schwantner has members of the orchestra humming a quiet vocalise, and the piece fades away. 
It is very slick, with more rhetoric than substance. It also suggests that Mr. Schwantner has a good deal of talent. Certainly he knows his way around the orchestra, and may have it in him to write a piece devoid of the platitudinous derivations of aftertones of infinity. Ooh. That is harsh. Scathing. Yeah. Harsh, harsh, harsh. Pretty scathing. But I think in many ways, I mean... I don't think Schoenberg knew what to do with this piece. That's as soon as I was thinking, I thought this sounds like a critic whose time has passed by and he's, it's not like a, a piece in the fifties or sixties anymore. And what do I do? How do I interpret this? But everyone was fascinated by the ending. So yeah. he mentioned it there when the piece won the award and the New York times has an announcement of all the winners it said, although most Pulitzer Prizes are achievements for during 1978, Mr. Schwantner's composition did not have its first public performance until January 29th of this year when it was presented at Alice Tully Hall. The composer, and this is what's really interesting, who experiments with electronic amplification does not limit himself to traditional musical instruments for the ending of his prize-winning piece, which takes 15 minutes to perform. Mr. Schwantner specified an unusual aftertone mm. humming by members of the orchestra. Really? Well, that, that's something that could be seen visually. Because I, I wonder about, you know, the beginning of the score has where the instrument should be mm -hmm. in the layout. And so if you're looking at this piece and then you're seeing the people humming, the orchestra humming, and I think that would be striking. Uh, yeah, it would, absolutely. And, and it would. And you're right. The, the score has um, some very interesting markings that basically he made up. But it also gives a layout of where he wants all the instruments. Because you do have to amplify them. You can't hear those crystal goblets no, uh, no. out above the orchestra unless they're amplified. But that's an instrument that's available to you that they're taking advantage of for this particular piece. But it's interesting. They, they pull that out to say, almost scoffing at it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not really an orchestral piece because <laughs> some of it is amplified. Right. And then it doesn't end well. It just fades away into nothing. So it's fascinating to see them grappling with a change in the musical landscape in real time. Right, exactly. And I wonder, before we give our take, I'm curious, you know, Schoenberg's, uh, Schoen, Schoenberg, Schoenberg not, yes. not Arnold Schoenberg, uh, you know, talking about its derivations and its derivative piece. Do you think he has any point to that, considering that you and I have talked in this episode about some prior winners who did some of the same things? I think the, yes, absolutely. But I think the difference is, we haven't heard it in a full-scale orchestral setting. Right. Now, this is moving into a very hide-bound, very tradition-bound medium and bringing these sounds that before were really chamber ideas and bringing them to kind of full-scale fruition in the, in the orchestra. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was picked because they tend to like orchestral music yeah. or big, we've seen recently a lot of vocal music, but they tend to like larger works than... A small chamber work. It's very rare a small chamber work will win unless you're Elliot Carter. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. All right, so Dave, hit or miss for you. I'm going to give this a big hit. I think I don't understand why there's only one recording of it. It's Leonard Slatkin, uh, the Juilliard Orchestra from mm -hmm. 100 years ago. It's like the only one I could find. Uh, I, I think this music should be performed more. I think it would be attractive to audiences. It's For me, the breaking point is 20 minutes. This is only 15. So this is well within a like could be that end of the first half yeah, exactly. piece at a Kansas City Symphony concert. Mm -hmm. uh, living composer, interesting, visually compelling. So uh, I, I didn't find myself getting bored with this oh, one no. like some of our previous ones. So I, I give it a hit. How about you? No, absolutely. This is a hit. It was interesting as I was listening to it. I kept comparing it to And the Mountains Rising Nowhere because yeah, I know that yeah. piece so well. And actually, I like Mountains Rising Nowhere a little bit more than this piece. But I, to your point about why this isn't 
performed more often, I think, frankly, it's union rules. Oh. Because all the musicians are singing or playing goblets, and so you have to pay them for playing two instruments. Oh, yeah. And so there's an additional kind of level of commitment that financial commitment an orchestra has to make to play this piece. So I think you get someone like Leonard Slatkin who is going to champion a piece like this and is willing to make the financial commitment because he wants to champion Schwantner. And he does. He even brings him to St. Louis. I think he was a composer in residence there. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons it gets played is because you have a conductor who's going to champion it. And that's really what I think a piece like this needs. Someone who's going to say to the board, we're going to play this. It costs a little extra, but it's an important piece. We need to hear it. Whereas, you know, band is going to be performed in a collegiate setting and you're going to ask them to sing, fine, they're students. You're yeah. going to have to pay them. Yeah. And so it's much easier for his band works to be performed in that way of this generation, right, of this time period in his output when he was asking these kind of new sounds and new ideas out of the ensembles. Well, I'm going back to something you said earlier that's a really great point is I barely remember the strings in this piece. It, it's all the other stuff. The other, and yeah. so the, the connection between the band work and this is I want this could be transcribed for band probably not oh, very, very easily very difficult it wouldn't be hard to do and then you'd get another hearing because I think it's definitely deserving absolutely uh, worth more hearing to hear it well that's it for this episode of hearing the Pulitzers as always you can find more about this project at our website hearing where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Joseph Schwantner Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes, and be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find our show. Finally, join us next episode where we'll move firmly into the 1980s with the work for singer and orchestra, David Del Tredici's In Memory of a Summer Day. Until then, keep listening. (laughs) ¶¶